0: Welcome to Grayson 30 on WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. This is Ed Melick, and I'm recording today's program in the field. Our criminal justice system is broken. We lock up way too many people in awful conditions. We generally don't help them rehabilitate and heal. Instead, our prisons seem to drain the life out of inmates and train them in new forms of criminal behavior. And the majority of those released commit more crimes and return to prison. Consider the following. In the US, over 2.2 million adults were incarcerated in federal and state prisons and county jails in 2013, about one in every 110 residents. There has been a roughly tenfold increase in our prison population since the early 1950s. As of 2009, 4.7% of adult black males were in prison as opposed to 0.7% of adult white males. Four and three quarter million people, almost one in 50, were on probation or on parole in 2013. While the U.S. represents only 4.4% of the world's population, it houses around 22% of the world's prisoners. Only one country has a higher documented incarceration rate. About two-thirds of prisoners released in 2005 were arrested for a new crime within three years, and three-quarters were arrested within five years. As of 2005, there were over 1,800 federal and state correctional facilities and 3,200 local and county jails in the U.S. This is greater than the number of degree-granting colleges and universities in our country. The U.S. correction system cost around $74 billion to operate in 2007, eclipsing the GDP of 133 countries. While this picture seems bleak, there is good news. Today I'm joined by James Ackerman, the President and CEO of Prison Fellowship, the nation's largest outreach to prisoners, former prisoners, and their families. Each month, Prison Fellowship touches the lives of tens of thousands of prisoners to truly transform them, help their families, and improve their odds of success when they're released from prison. James joins us to talk about a number of the Prison Fellowship programs and their remarkable impact on those who participate and, in turn, on our society. James, welcome to Grace in 30.
1: Uh, Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate
0: it. Really good to be here. Um, Sorry for the long intro. A lot of data there.
1: No, look, you painted a picture of the problem very well.
0: I have always, I've known about you guys for a while, always been very impressed with what you do. But as I started to research for this interview, I got really impressed and excited about coming in. And I think as you saw, I've got about 12 pages of, of notes I took preparing. Maybe a good place to start is sort of to share the breadth and the depth of your impact, the scope of the work you do, and then we can start drilling down on individual programs.
1: Right, so Prison Fellowship has programming in 449 prisons across the country today. We operate our Angel Tree program through 1,233 prisons across the country. Um, And we have our year-long, most of them year-long, intensive academies in, today, 76 prisons in 23 states and we can break down each one of those as we uh, go through our conversation.
0: So when you say you have people programs in 449 prisons, that's basically at least you're going and having people visit the prisoners. And then you have formal programs, the academies in a subset of those.
1: Yeah, so we operate things like Bible studies, individual courses uh, in state and federal prisons and even county jails all across the country. Uh, And we enable them, we provide curriculum, we provide training. Uh, and all of that. And then we have our intensive academies, which are much more holistic in their approach.
0: So you touch a lot of prisoners. Yes. How many would you say in a given month?
1: In a given month, probably 25,000 a month. Um, and you know, in the course of a year, probably unique prisoners, probably 200,000 in a year.
0: Wow. And how many family members? Because you're working with children of prisoners and their spouses?
1: So we have our angel tree program, whereby um, volunteers all across the country, usually through churches, purchase and deliver Christmas gifts for uh, incarcerated moms and dads for their children. And so we literally act as proxy, if you will, on behalf of the incarcerated mom or dad, to purchase and deliver a Christmas gift and the gospel message to their children. This past Christmas, we served over 291,000 children. Wow. And that was um, through over 160,000 applications from prisoners on the inside and facilitated through over 7,200 churches.
0: So, what strikes me here is you're starting to get some deep penetration into the prison system. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. You're, you're touching, I mean, there's 2.2 2 million people in right. there, and you're touching. Two hundred thousand unique people. Right. You've, you've probably touched ten percent of the system.
1: Yeah, probably, and even more so because I mean, those are people who have, you know, come to a class or a Bible study or gone through our academy or participated in a yard event, things of that kind. We also publish uh, a, a newsletter called Inside Journal, which goes. You know, we we produce hundreds of thousands of those, and those probably get passed around. So our reach is probably mm-hmm. even greater than that.
0: So you have this very big penetration into the prison system. Do you have like certain big, hairy, audacious goals of sort of reaching the entire prison system by some date? or
1: Yeah, absol- absolutely. So we kicked off a campaign just last week called 40 to 50, which is to take f- the lessons learned through 40 years of experience, because we've existed for 40 years, and apply them in our march to launch our intensive academies in every single state By the time we hit our 50th anniversary which means by definition the next 10 years and we want to make sure that we establish an academy in every state in at least one man's and one women's prison right and uh, so take the state of california for example we have 15 of our lower intensity academies there right but you might have another state that can only support one in a men's prison, one in a women's prison. And so we want to just make sure that we have uh, everybody covered as much as possible. Uh, Our goal is to grow from 76 today, um, and literally 76 today because our 76th opened today, um, to 172 academies in 10 years.
0: You know, you mentioned two women's prisons. Um, I was reading some research by someone named Byron Johnson, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with. And he said something that was really sad and shocking to me. And he said that basically people don't come and visit female prisoners. That people come to see the males. They have wives and children and they come in and see them. But that the condition in female prisons is a lot different. They don't have as much attention from people on the outside, which kind of breaks your heart when you hear something like that. What's the mix of male and female prisoners that you visit? And and are you trying to make a more and more concerted effort to see and help the female prisoners?
1: Absolutely. We are absolutely making a more concerted effort to serve women prisoners. Women prisoners are the minority by a a fair margin um, than men prisoners, but they have very different issues for the most part. You will find with women that a common thread in their narrative is twofold. One I knew about before I came here and the other I learned. The one I knew about is abuse. Most women in prison have suffered abuse at the hands of usually a man um, at some point in their life, whether it was a father or a stepfather or a mother's boyfriend or um, a husband or boyfriend themselves, um, they suffered abuse. The thing I didn't know but I learned is that the other common thread is addiction. So often to maybe anesthetize the pain of the abuse, they get involved in drugs, and then that leads to criminal behavior. So you have people who are in prison, women who are in prison for violent acts, but violent acts against people that were abusing them, right? Um, or you have women who are in prison who have committed uh, robberies, for example, but it was a robbery to per- feed the drug habit, right? And so, um, you know, ministering to the needs of women is different than what is needed for men. So are your programs tailored for they that? They are, they absolutely are. So if you go to a state like Minnesota is a really good example. So in Minnesota, we have four of our academies. Yeah, We have two high intensity academies where re- literally prison fellowship staff are in the prison every day, right? And then we have two lower, lo- lower intensity academies where prison fellowship supervises and equips volunteers who go in and, and do a few hours of teaching every week, right? Um, in the uh, there is one women's prison in the whole state of Minnesota, and it's called Shakopee. And Shakopee has every level of security, so it has absolutely low security to to solitary confinement. And our program at Shakopee, uh, which has uh, t- uh, I think up to twenty women in any given new class, um, is Is really a beautiful thing and it's entirely focused to meeting the needs of women as compared to the one over at Lionel Lakes for men which is takes a completely different approach and one of the questions I was asked when I came on board here is can we get more curriculum designed for women and I'm like absolutely whatever the field needs to more meet the needs of women in prison they should have Uh, just a quick break give
0: you a a small breather Uh, we're talking to James Ackerman the president and CEO of Prison Fellowship, the nation's largest outreach to prisoners, former prisoners, and their families. Working with tens of thousands of prisoners to truly transform them, help their families, and improve their odds of success when they are released from prison. I want to talk a little bit, I I went on your website, there sort of seem to be five general areas where you guys work, restoring prisoners, inspiring wardens, uh, ministering to the families, eliminating the second prison after release, and uh, advocating for restorative justice. That's a lot, a lot of things you guys are involved in. Um, what, what is surprising me though, I wanted to spend a little time on is to talk about just the brief history of you know, Chuck Colson starting things. I heard a speech he gave back in 2010 where he noted that uh, you were running 10 prisons, but now you've got academies in 76. So that's a lot of growth in six, seven years and you're sort of shooting up exponentially from here, trying to get more and more prisons added. Give me a little history, just like a rapid history, of how things got started with him. Maybe talk about the the interchange program. That was the first prison that you guys worked in back in, uh, I think it was 1979.
1: So Chuck founded Prison Fellowship 40 years ago. Depending on the age of your listeners, they will either know Chuck really well, or they may not have heard of him at all. Um, but Chuck Colson was uh, Nixon's special counsel and went to prison for a crime related to Watergate. Um, when uh, Chuck, Chuck became a Christian, not long before he went to prison, but he did become a Christian before he went to prison and while he was in prison he discovered that incarcerated men and women for that matter are among the most marginalized in society and he made a decision that he would commit his life to serving their needs chuck came out of prison with two great passions the first was to serve the needs of incarcerated men and women and their families and the second is biblical worldview, right and so prison fellowship in a sense is an organization that focuses on On delivering biblical worldview to a specified client which is incarcerated men and women and their families. Um, Prison Fellowship has grown substantially um, over the years but in part because the the corrections environment has become very friendly to our organization right. Our programs work and the word has gotten around that men and women who are graduating from our programming are less likely to return to prison than the state average. And so, um, you know, states want programs that work. We can't have a situation like you. We can't continue to have a situation, situation like the one you outlined when you started this interview. I mean, it's ridiculous. 2.2 million people in prison today? We incarcerate nearly 25% of the global incarcerated pop- population? It's, it's ridiculous, right? It do, it's, it's untenable. States can't afford to keep locking more people away. They have to come up with a better solution, and they have to introduce program that works, that puts productive people back into society, reduces pr- prison population, and creates safer communities.
0: You bring up an interesting point, because I've thought so many times, 2.2 million people. This is like a, a standing army, a workforce. Absolutely. I mean, we could be teaching these people a whole host of skills, whether Absolutely. it's trade skills or computer skills or whatever. Right. It seems like the only thing, and correct me if I'm wrong, that we started to do is allow the prisoners to start working out, mm-hmm. and now they're becoming super criminals, getting incredibly strong yeah. you know, while they're in prison. Are any of your programs focused on, you know, first you've got to work on the, the core of the person, yeah. work on the heart and change them, but are you doing things to help them to develop skills and life skills that they can come out and get work and be engaged?
1: yeah so we don't run job programs per se but increasingly states are introducing job training programs in prisons michigan is one of those states they have wonderful job training programs to learn carpentry learn auto mechanics learn welding learn all kinds of trades that you can take on the outside but in our academies there's basically four legs if you will to our academy the first is that we Our primary focus is to adjust the criminogenic thinking of a person, right? If what you think it is to be a man is to be strong, to be built up, to be tough, to be all tattooed, to defend your gang affiliation, that's what it means to be a man. We want to address that and help you understand how God sees what it is to be a man, how God sees you as a person of value that he gifted with unique and specific gifts and has a plan for your life. So that's where we start, right? The gospel is at the center of what we do, but We invite anybody into our programs. We don't discriminate against anybody. You can be of any religion or no faith at all and come into our academy, right? We're gonna present you a God-centric focus on what it means to be a man in the Christian faith, but you respond as you feel called, right? The second leg is we really seek to address what I call the first cousins of one's criminal past, yeah? So that may be addiction issues. That may be anger management issues. We address those things in our academies, right? You're going to go through our addiction recovery programming because we want you to grasp and grapple with those issues while you're in prison, right? Um, The third is relationships, right? What do healthy relationships look like? So many men in prison were not raised by a man who was a healthy father, right? Some were, but many were not. And so we're going to teach you what it means to be a good dad, for example, or to be a good husband, right? And then lastly, we deal with practical life skills, how to manage money, how to conduct yourself in a job interview, and things of that kind. Because our goal at the end of the day is to help you become a productive citizen in and out of prison, Right? One of the decisions that Prison Fellowship made some time ago was that in all of our academy classes, even though most of them are orientated towards pre-release, we always have long-termers or lifers in every class. Why? Because they become advocates of hope and peace, back in the prison units, and they also could become mentors and counselors to the men in the current class.
0: That's deep, that's very encouraging. I yeah. mean, to give them some higher purpose, Absolutely. even though they have a sentence that's gonna keep them there the entire time.
1: There's a woman in Shakopee, this prison I mentioned to you, and I won't name her name just for the sake of protecting her identity and, 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 uh, and you know victims uh, of, of her crimes, but she went to prison for a double, double murder right she's never getting out she has two life sentences right and so um, so but she has become one of these women who went through our program and is now a counselor to the women in the current class and has absolutely given her purpose in life she gets every every morning and can't wait to get to do her new job that's great and That's she knows she's not going anywhere, yep. so it's not like she's sitting there filing a bunch of appeals and this and that. No, she's going and doing her thing, which is helping these women avoid going down the path that she went. Yep.
0: I, I, I don't want to put you on the spot if you're, if you're not prepared to do this, but I, I was fascinated when I read some of the statistics uh, on the when Interchange, was the f- that first uh, prison you guys launched in, which was in 1997, And about six years later, Byron Johnson did a a study of the data. People who went completely through the program, Mm -hmm. people who started it but didn't finish it. Maybe Mm -hmm. they were released three days after they started or sometime in. And then there were just the general people that were released and weren't in the program. And some of the numbers are kind of shocking because it says what what I pulled out of the report was uh, people that were arrested again two years later after release 17.3 17.3 percent of the ifi program uh, participants 50 percent of the non-completers and 35 percent of the match group similar people but people who didn't go through the program so it was half the number of those in the match group and one-third of the number of the people that were that went started the program and didn't complete it and there were the same sort of numbers on the uh, the incarcerated side some people were arrested but not jailed others were arrested and went back to prison it was this 8% of the graduates versus 20.3% of the match group so it's less than half mm-hmm. so these are great do you have updated figures for this i know this 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 report was put out in 2009 and it was really focused on what happened in the interchange program i think it studied it for 6 years yeah now you're you got to 10 Uh, Prisons and now you're in 75, 76 prisons. Do you have sort of more up-to-date numbers that sort of give a data validation to what you're doing?
1: We have a number of studies. I don't know the dates of all of them. I do know there's a new one going on in California right now. Um, So we look forward to getting data from that when it's ready. There was one published in Minnesota uh, that showed that um, it probably wasn't quite, it didn't have the three tiers, it just made the comparison that graduates of our programs at Lionel Lakes and Shakopee um, who uh, left the prison, um, had, a, and had a mentor on the outside, had a recidivism rate of a mere 0.8% over a three-year period compared to the state average. Now, I think a lot of researchers wouldn't quite take that as being a pure apples-to-apples comparison, but nevertheless, the results are, the, are what they are, right? People who are prepared to have a mentor live in their lives and help them carry on what they learned in prison um, and who can introduce them to businesses that are more likely or more apt to hire people who spent time in prison and are, um, you know, willing to sit down and fill out the credit app that you need to fill out to get your first apartment and this and that. Uh, those, those people end up living much more successfully.
0: I wanted to read something. Byron Johnson, he wrote a book called More God, Less Crime. Yeah. And at one point he gave a speech. I think speech. he's a Baylor now, right? I think so. Yeah. And uh, funny story because he's, you know, he's he's a, a Christian. Right. He's a, a data scientist and he's a criminologist. Right. And he mentioned he gave a speech recently for about an hour or so at, at a, to a group, and he talked about how he was in a major university and someone pulled him aside and said, "You're just different than us. You should go to a small Christian school and right. just toil away there," and and he sort of said, "No, that tells me I shouldn't do that. Right. I should stay here and try to." apply this data discipline. And so he spoke before a group, the American Society of Criminology, and he said after the presentation, the former president wrote him a note. And he said, literally, I had no idea this literature existed. Our field has a blind spot and it's religion. It's unfortunate, it's a misstep, and it has to be corrected. As of today, I suggest that we start a new subfield within criminology dedicated to the study of religion. Let the data do the talking which was really amazing to hear something like that. Um, He also noted, uh, Byron, that um, the importance of having a mentor. Mm -hmm. You know, someone coming out, you have a mentor in prison as well as when you get out, someone to sort of walk alongside you. And when you have a moment of weakness or or you need some counsel or something, that person is there. That's incredibly important. Why should that surprise us? It's important in business. It's important in every sense of life. Yeah.
1: I've been in a mentoring relationship for 12 years now. And the person that I've been in a mentoring relationship was a guy that was in a life skills class I taught at Riverbend Ma- Maximum Security Prison in Nashville, Tennessee. And he was a student in that class. He went to prison for murder when he was 19 years old and went down for a 25-year sentence. And 11 years later, found himself in my class. And he took the work incredibly seriously. And at graduation, asked me if I'd become his mentor. And we carried on our mentoring relationship in prison. And then when he finally did get out, we carried on outside of the prison. And even yeah. when we moved away, we carried on and remained in touch with each other. Oh, that's great. And the, his journey is transformative. Because here's a kid who went to prison for murder because he got in a fight with a fellow drug dealer over a girl. Hmm. He knew not what 19-year-olds are like. Yep. So he gets impetuous. He, they both whip their guns out. William shoots first, right? And suddenly his entire life, yep has changed right this guy bleeds out of his feet and life's plan sets a new direction i want to make sure i'm going to jump ahead a
0: little bit because before we time out in this segment i want to, i do want to ask you to give a call to action a, a challenge to our listeners we all we don't want to be a show where we tell a beautiful story and people say that's really nice and they forget it two days later we want right. to try to get people to to do something. Yeah. If it's as simple as just treating you know, visiting yeah. people in prison or if it's actually they have a heart for this sort of thing getting involved in it in some way, is there one or two things that you want to share with people to say, you know, to sort of challenge them to get involved in some way in this sort of ministry? There's
1: a number of ways you can get involved and I would encourage you to go to prisonfellowship.org and check out the website and see the volunteer section you can see the donate section and see where you feel called and led at a minimum i would encourage your uh, listeners to be praying for us right prisons can be incredibly dark and dangerous places some gangs don't want us there at all they don't like our presence there Um, and so you know, we pray every time before we go into prison because we, it's essential that we do so. But also prisons can be places of tremendous renewal and hope. And so you know, be praying over our work and be praying, be praying over the men and women in prison that they would come to know Christ, and that they would come to find their life set in a new direction. Uh, the other thing I would say is we don't take a dollar from government. We are fully supported by donations by individuals and foundations. So if you feel so led, please support our work. And again, you can go to prisonfellowship.org to learn how you can volunteer and or donate.
0: Let me also ask you just, is there anything you want to share about these people? I mean, there's there's usually great ignorance or confusion about folks like this. I mean, tell us.
1: Yeah, first of all, they're people, okay? Yep. So just like you and me, they have hopes and fears They have ambitions, they have had mistakes they've made, um, and they are people. And when we separate the crime that somebody committed and was convicted for um, from the person and focus on the person, we end up having a whole new perspective on why it's important to invest in this person's life. God called us in Matthew 25 to visit the imprisoned, and oh, by the way, read Matthew 25 because when jesus says you know you did this that and the other thing for me right he admonishes those who did so but boy does he have a rebuke for those who don't yes right yes and so um you know it's really important stuff but that was my discovery the first time i went to prison i realized oh my gosh these are people right they matter Mm -hmm. we have to invest our lives in their lives
0: yep I wanted to add a couple scriptures. One is Hebrews thirteen three. it says, remember those in prison as if you were there yourself. Yes. And then a, a scripture on fasting in Isaiah 58, and when God is sort of scolding the Israelites, he's like, you're, you're going through the motions and bowing your head in penance and all this. But this is the type of fasting I want, which is to free those who are wrongly imprisoned, to lighten the burden of those who work for you, let the oppressed go free and remove the chains that bind people. And he promises, he says, then your salvation will come like the dawn and your wounds will heal quickly and your godliness will lead you forward. That's really, when you read those scriptures, it's really cool. We
1: we had an event in Naples, Florida last week. It was a fundraising event, about 200 people. And um, I arranged through our field staff to have what I called a prison fellowship ambassador at every table. The prison fellowship ambassadors, what they have in common is every single one of them is either a full-time staff member, a prison fellowship, or a high-impact volunteer. In other words, like a teaching volunteer, right? In prison, um, who had an intersection with prison fellowship while serving time on the inside. And you you know, I'm telling you, you, you haven't lived until You've hugged a man who's six foot three and muscled and used to think about how he was going to break people in the yard and now just is so full of love he can't and has tears running down the side of his face and is just filled with joy. I mean, it's palpable.
0: That's a that's a great place to stop. It's a very encouraging place. James, thank you so much. This is Ed signing off from Grayson30 on W-E-R-A-L-P, Arlington 96.7 FM. Please uh, take to heart James's words and his admonishments and uh, be sure to have a great day and tune in to grace.